Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Morning, everyone. Uh, so this morning, we're going to continue on in a sermon series we've been doing through Mark uh, entitled Divine Invitation. And I'm just going to let you know now, I have quite a large chunk of text that I'm going to go through. Uh, I don't really plan to exegete and exposit all of the text. We'll be in two different passages in Mark. Um, but I want to more look at an idea from the text this morning. I really want to push on that idea pretty hard because I think it's a, it's a, a heavy one. And I think it influences our everyday life to a very, 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 very great degree. Uh, and so we're looking at this morning the true marks of, the, of kingdom greatness, and so I want to go and jump in with the big idea, uh, and then from there we'll, we'll move into the passage. So the big idea is this, it's greatness may not be what you think, right? Greatness may not be what you think, and, and here's the thing, simple sentence, a lot to unpack on that, and so I'm not going to waste a lot of time on introduction, I just want to jump into it. Uh, And so as we go through this, I just want you to be considering the lens through which we're looking at this whole sermon this morning is that greatness may not be what you think. It will not identify with what the world considers greatness to be, but that kingdom greatness is something utterly different. We're going to find a sharp contrast to that this morning. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 10 Uh, We're going to go through a little bit of Mark 8 first, then we're going to move down to Mark 10, uh, and then we're going to nail it home. And so starting out Mark chapter 8, it'll be verses 27 through 35. Uh, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 35, Mark says this, he says, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say that you're one of the prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you're the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later, he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from the human point of view and not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, He said, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must turn away from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. So you have kind of a three-part act happening in this passage, right? And it's very simple. Number one, Jesus poses a question. Who do the masses of people say that I am? And the disciples respond essentially saying, well, they they all say you're somebody great, right? Nobody's saying that you're nothing. Nobody's saying that you're going unnoticed. 
They think that you're maybe John the Baptist risen from the dead. They think that maybe you're, you're the, the prophet Elijah having returned, right? Because Elijah never died. He was just taken up. And so maybe you're Elijah having returned, or maybe you're just some other prophet, but here's what we know. Whoever you are, the voice of God is working through you. Everyone knows that. That's what all the crowds are saying. And then Jesus asks him a question that is the most important question that has anything to do with your life ever. It dictates what you do in private. It dictates what you do in public. It dictates what goes on right here in your head on a daily, minute-by-minute basis. Who do you say that I am? Not you. You. Individually, in your seat, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And what you believe about that question determines everything about your life, everything about your worldview, everything. Peter, a lot like myself, this time he's right, uh, just blurts out in impulsiveness. I do that a lot, most of the time I'm not right. Uh, But Peter just blurts out and he says, you're the Messiah, right? Matthew would record it that you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Essentially, here's what he's saying. Hey, these people say that you're great, but I'm saying you're the greatest. To be the Messiah means you are second to none. Now, you have to also understand, though, they had a very different viewpoint of what we know about the Messiah. They're still on that side. They're on the other side of the cross still. They haven't seen the death and resurrection yet. They know in part what some of the prophecies understood, but they didn't still grasp a suffering servant. And so they're thinking, yeah, you're the Messiah. You're the guy that's going to come and overturn Rome and free us from the bondage and the tyranny that they've brought on us. And so what they're envisioning, when he says you're the Messiah, he means you're the militant ruler. You're the guy coming to conquer. You're the greatest is what Peter tells him. And then what's so bizarre is, you see, now, here's the thing. Let me, let me step aside. Uh, Mark, Mark is not giving you an exhaustive account of the entire conversation. The gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel that we have, and it's bizarre because Mark really just starts out hitting the ground running and just hits all these main points in the life of Jesus. And so where we transition to in this passage, it may not have gone, and then Jesus directly turns his attention to saying, the conversation may have carried on a little bit, but then Mark transitions to a different point. He gets done explaining that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the greatest and the highest, right? Second to none on the highest throne, there's none like him. You cannot liken him to any. He rules and reigns all things. And then what Jesus does is he goes, you're right, Peter, don't tell anybody. By the way, you know what's going to happen to me? I'm not about to get up on the throne of the earth and just start demanding rule. Instead, I'm going to be betrayed by my closest, turned over to a pagan government that you want me to defeat, and crucified. Now that's opposite. That's not what they were expecting. But Lord, you're the Messiah. You're the greatest, right? You're not even just a mere prophet. What are you saying? This doesn't make any sense. So Peter, now acting like me, 
pulls Jesus aside. He says, hey, this isn't the case. He reprimands him. He rebukes him. Imagine the audacity, right, to be a disciple and pull aside your discipler, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, whom you just said is the Messiah, and then go, hey, you're wrong on this issue. So Peter confronts him, and Jesus says, get away from me, Satan. What exactly does that mean? It means Satan has a particular worldview, and it has to do with lording your authority over people. It has to do everything with tyranny. You know what Jesus says? You're thinking about worldly things as man thinks about him. You're not thinking the way God thinks. Now I want you to understand something. The greatest that has ever been and ever will be Infinitely great beyond your comprehension. That's what he says. I don't know who you consider to be great and who you take advice from, but it doesn't get greater than this. And he says to be exalting yourself over people is actually to be thinking the way that Satan thinks and not the way that God thinks. That God has another train of thought. And so the way of the kingdom that Jesus would explain it, the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. That's the bottom line of it all. Now, it's very unworldly to think that way. In fact, it's a very sharp contrast to our natural inclinations, right? We think as we climb the ladder of success and achievement that more and more people, though as believers, we would never say this, should be bowing down to us, right? I'll never forget one year being at camp several years ago. I, some of you may know the people. I'm not going to name names anyway. It doesn't matter. Uh, but we're getting done wrapping up at camp. And some of the guys who were just now leaders, they graduated high school, they came back. Now they're leading at camp. They're all pumped about it. We're, getting to, we're, we're doing cleanup. And I come out of the worship area, and these guys have students, and they're standing there, and they're telling the students to go and pick up all the trash laying around as they stand there and point, telling them what they're going to do. Right? They think they've arrived, and now everybody else owes them work. And that is just not the kingdom mentality by any means. And it's a trivial, trivial example, but those who are faithful with little will be faithful with much. If you can't even show proper biblical leadership to a group of students when it comes to picking up trash, you don't show biblical leadership at all. And so Jesus gives them a very sharp contrast. And this is, we're not going to sit on this right now, but we're going to come back to it. That essentially you want to be a disciple of the Messiah, you want to be a follower of the greatest, it's going to look like laying down everything you thought life was and taking up a cross and following him. Not once, but daily. Daily dying to self, letting go of what you think life is to follow his. In other words, all your natural inclinations laying aside. But do you know what's going to determine whether you do that or not? Who you say that he is? That's what's going to determine it. And so you move down, Mark chapter 10, you're going to get to see a very clear example, and this is where we're going to start bringing it home. Right? We're going to kind of start looking into the heart of ourselves here in a second. That's my favorite thing to do. Uh, and so in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45, we're going to find ourselves, we're going to see a little example of what Peter's expecting and what we tend to expect, whether we want to admit it or not. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. 
Mark says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came over and spoke to him, being Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do a favor for us. What's your request, he asked. They replied, when you sit on your glorious throne, we want to sit in the places of honor next to you, one on your right hand and the other on your left. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering that I'm about to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism of suffering that I must be baptized with? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. Then Jesus told them, you will indeed drink the cup, but you will indeed drink from the bitter cup and be baptized with the baptism of suffering. But I, Jesus says, I, I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. God has prepared those places for the one whom he has chosen. When the 10 other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. So Jesus called, to, called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the world lord it over the people and the officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be leader among you must be the servant and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of everyone else. For even the Son of Man, in other words, a synonymous term for the Messiah, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now here's where we start to relate a little bit better, right? The disciples come in and they want greatness is essentially what they're asking for. They think that Jesus, the Messiah, is a military ruler that's about to conquer everything and he's fixing to rule. And so what they do is they go, hey, when you get your, your little throne of glory, you go and bring us up next to you and sit us on your right and on your left so that we can reign with you. Right? And some of you guys in our culture were like, hey, that's a really audacious thing to say, right? We believe in fake humility, uh, what we call modesty, but in reality, we're just, we're normally faking that as well. Uh, but you have to understand also the culture they're coming from isn't like ours. They didn't have upper, middle, lower class. They had really two classes, rich and powerful, poor peasants. James and John had been poor peasants, right? And do you know what poor peasants had in the first century? Nothing. They had nothing. They had no rights, no rule, no say. Whatever the government wanted to do, they just did. And so, of course, it's natural for them because they're coming from, from extreme poverty and powerlessness. And so for them, they just want power for once. They're going, Lord, when you get it, please give it to us also, finally, so that we can get these guys who've been stomping on us all this time, we can stomp on them back. Right? We got a little vengeance to let go of here, too. The other 10 disciples hear about it. You know what's so funny to me? <laughs> they don't even confront it right. They heard the request made and so they were indignant. You know what that means? James and John slid in behind our back to Jesus to try and get the, the most authoritative positions, right? It has nothing to do with, man, that's not a very biblical way to act. That doesn't seem much like the Lord. That's not their concern. Their concern is they beat us to the punch. 
So they're indignant. And look at what Jesus does. I love what Jesus does. You know what he doesn't do? He's no people pleaser. He doesn't come along and go, you know what, guys, you're right. Hey, James and John, come here. We got to talk about this. Let's, let's settle this and let's move over here. And then I'll calm these 10 down really quick. And then we'll kind of, no, he turns and confronts every one of them. I love that. I love confrontation. And so I'm excited that what Jesus does, he doesn't separate anything. He says, you're all wrong. Y'all got the wrong viewpoint. You wouldn't be mad unless you wanted what they're trying to get. And so Jesus confronts him. He says, listen, let's go back to Mark 8. You're thinking like the world. You're looking at what you've known, all these other worldly leaders, these pagan leaders, you're seeing what they've done and you're wanting to imitate that, but you're not understanding. That is not how the kingdom of God functions. It is utterly different. You see how the rulers of this world lord it over people, how they flaunt their authority, how they're flexing on everybody. Jesus says, it will be different with you. You will not be like them. He says, you want to be great in my kingdom, you take yourself to the lowest. You want to be a ruler, then you have to be a servant. And now here's what he's not saying. He's not saying, well, if you'll just serve here for a little while, then eventually you'll get to that place of a throne and leadership. You get to that throne and leadership, you're still a servant. In the kingdom of heaven, the greatest will always be servants. Because that's what the kingdom of heaven is made up of, right? What does he say? Even the son of man didn't come to be served, but came to what? To serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, to serve to an extreme that you don't even comprehend. So where do we fit in? Because here's the thing. Like I said, we're in a culture where we got a fake humility. You know what I mean? Like we're like, yeah, I would never ask for greatness or anything like that. All right. Let's do that. But now, again, let, let, let me remind you of something. James and John are really living in the greatest hell they can imagine at that point. Powerless peasants. Salvation means getting up to the highest throne. So that's what they want, naturally. And so here's what I thought. I thought, I don't want to sit here and talk to you guys about trying to sit on a throne because that may not be relevant to everyone, but let's, let's address it from this standpoint, all right? Tim Keller, uh, my favorite human being on the planet, Tim Keller basically funnels down all idolatry to four foundational idols, right? Essentially what's going on with James and John, essentially what's going on with Peter is idolatry. That's really what it is. They've got something else they're serving that isn't the real God of heaven, right? And you could say, well, Daniel, I think that's a bend, but they have a wrong view of who God is. In other words, what they've done is they've formed and fashioned this idea of God that they think he is, and now they're serving that God. That, is that not textbook idolatry? They think that God is a taskmaster in heaven that rules and reigns flaunting authority, and so they want to do the same. So Tim Keller brings it down to four foundational idols. Power, control, acceptance, and comfort. 
power, control, acceptance, and comfort. Now, I know what you may be thinking. You may have been thinking, yeah, but Daniel, what about money? And what about fitness? And what about, those are just means to get to this end, right? You can't, we, we, we can't go along thinking about idolatry in such a superficial manner to where we actually think we're bowing down to money. You're not, you don't, you don't idolatry, you're not, you're not idolizing money, right? You're idolizing what money can give you right? With money comes something that you want so badly or whatever the idol may be. And so Keller says it's one of those four things. And and usually if we're honest, it's a little bit of all four, but there's one that's dominant. There's one that's dominant out of power, control, acceptance, and comfort. And if maybe you're searching right now and going, well, I don't really know, Daniel, like what is mine? Well, Put yourselves in the shoes of James and John for a second. What's your greatest hell? What's the one thing in life right now? And here's the thing, you're probably already defending it in your head. So maybe you already found it. What's the one thing that if God confronted you and said you give that up or I take it away that you shake your fist at the heaven? That you look at God and tell him he's no longer good? That you slander him and blaspheme him? What's the one thing? You found your idol. Because the reality of the situation is very simple. You go, well, no, 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 it's not that. I just don't think God has a right to touch it. Why, isn't he God? Or are you just using God to be the means to get to that end? Right? I work in youth ministry, so you know what I deal with a lot? I deal a lot with youth who get in relationships and they're like, I'm gonna serve the Lord with everything. And so they read their Bible and they pray and they do all the little biblical Christian things that they're supposed to do as good little boys and girls. And then their girlfriend or the boyfriend breaks up with them. You know what they do? Forget God, he's not good. How dare he do this to me? I'm not serving him anymore. Well, you never serving God, you were serving the girl. She's the God. He's just a means for you to get there. Completely deceived. Thinking the whole time they were aiming and doing what was right and they were missing the mark. What's your greatest hell? You'll find your replacement savior. Let me put it another way. Maybe you found something in life that is good, right? There's a lot of things in life that are good. God-given gifts. Typically what happens is our heart corrupts those things, right? And so a very simple way to put it is idolatry is often when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. That when we lose it, it's not just some disappointment, it's utter brokenness and despair. What is it? I can tell you for myself personally, being utterly humiliated for most of my junior high life, which I know it's junior high, but at the time, that's your world. You know what I never wanted again? To be humiliated. So you know what I did? Gained as much power as I possibly could. I was humiliated by girls, I was humiliated by guys. So I thought to myself, well, if girls want me, then I won't be humiliated by him anymore. And if guys are scared of me, then they can't humiliate me publicly anymore. And so you see where I found my savior, humiliation being my greatest hell, power being my greatest savior. And so I sought it out. 
And I would say to a large degree, I achieved. And then I converted to Christianity in 2009. You know what's peculiar about that? You would think at that point all idolatry is gone, but you know what happened? It just switched from violence to knowledge. Because now I could use this stage to stand up here and flex everything that I know so that people would come and want my advice. And then I can manipulate everybody by the things that I say because I'm the good preacher guy. You would never doubt that I'm trying to steer you in the wrong direction. And so I could manipulate and control every single situation that I ever wanted to because I knew a lot. And so knowledge became my power that I would just shove everyone else down. And I could get up here and speak authoritatively and go crazy and people like, oh my gosh. And that was just, that was now the throne that I stood on. But the problem is it's never enough, right? I don't know if you know this yet, but idolatry is a very elusive thing. It's like chasing a cloud and trying to hug it. It's right in front of you, but you can never actually grab it. And so it was just eventually not enough, right? Started out with a Sunday school class. They're all bowing down. So then I get the stage of the youth ministry. They're all bowing down. So then I get another stage. They're all bowing And I got everybody. But then I'm like, well, now I need a bigger stage. I need thousands and millions in the masses. And I'll just woo them with my eloquence and my passion. It's bizarre what an idol will do to you. It will utterly chew you up and spit you out. And it'll also have you convinced the entire time that you're doing it for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I came to this point this last spring, I went on a small vacation, uh, went up to College Station, then from there, one day I just wanted to go out to Somerville and just sit, right, stressed out. Like, I don't know if you know this, but when you're in a position of leadership in any form, you have a group of people who are always looking for your affirmation, your responses, your everything and it just exhausts. I'm an introvert I don't like it I don't need I don't want people to need my attention all the time I end up there and it just got exhausting and then I couldn't figure out what was real anymore and what wasn't and so I just needed to get away and so I went to Somerville I was like I don't care what I do right the McGrews are like surely you fished I didn't I'm sorry I should have right I repent for that but I just was like I need to just sit on a rock and just stare, you know, and I did. And I just sit on this rock and I'm staring out at the vastness of Lake Somerville. And I realized the whole time that my treasure had been in the wrong place. And that all I had really done was substituted Christianity for an idol to seek a treasure for some worldly greatness that had nothing to do with the kingdom of heaven at all. And the Lord led me to a passage, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Do not let the wise boast in their wisdom or the powerful boast in their power or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone, that they truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that, in, in, that I delight in these things, and that took me a minute. Listen, when I read that, that took me a minute because I understand the way that we like to define boasting is to sit up and brag. But boasting is something far deeper than that. Boasting has more to do with effulgence or radiance. In other words, when you walk in a room, you want everyone to have a certain adjective that pops to mind the second you walk there. 
that your very presence carries a word with it that everyone goes. And what that gives you, that gives you power in the room or that gives you control in the room or that gives you acceptance in the room or that gives you comfort in the room. I wanted my boast, I wanted my radiance, I wanted my presence to cover up everything that I was so ashamed of so that no one could see the real me. And you understand that every one of you in this room are a slave to that as well. Let's take this all the way back to our first ancestors. What did Adam and Eve do the second they sinned? Right, Satan said, hey, eat this fruit, you get a throne, you be like God. They ate the fruit, what'd they get? Shame. Over their nakedness, what's the first thing they did? They sewed up some fig leaves to cover it. What's your fig leaf? What have you sewn up to cover over it so that people would know that about you instead of the real you? It's bizarre that we can read 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul says, I boast of my weaknesses, and then we do the exact opposite. Shame, fear, guilt, sin. It makes us a slave to sewing up these fig leaves to try and be covered by it so that in some degree or some fashion when we walk in a room, we have some element of greatness so that we'll finally at least have people convinced that we're worthwhile, right? But in reality, you wouldn't want your 10 worst thoughts to show on the screen that you've had this morning, much less your entire life. I've said it before, I'll say it again. My greatest fear is that people see me how I see me. You see, the greatness we're, we're running for, it's just a cover-up and a facade for everything that corrupts us. And so how do we escape the slavery of these fig leaves, the slavery of this boasting Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Jesus uses some very peculiar wording. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a very particular language. For us, it, for us it's like well, someone was kidnapped, right? You're already thinking about taken. You know, like your brain's going to something like that. But, but biblically, it had to do with slavery, redemption. You gave a ransom to purchase a slave to redeem them from the power that was controlling them. The language of ransom is very intentional by Jesus Christ because you have to understand something about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, right? If you ever read Philippians chapter two, uh, there's not a slide for this, but Philippians chapter two, verses five through eight, where Paul gives this weird expounding basically through worship, saying that though Jesus is in equality with God, he's one with him, Right? In other words, all the power of God, all the prestige of God, all the everything of God, he didn't consider that as something to be grasped. It wasn't a privilege that he was going to cling on to and hold to himself, but instead he set that divine privilege aside and came down as a man. In obedience to his father's slave to the law, obedient all the way to the point of death, but not just any death, death on a cross. Why? Because he was laying down his life as a ransom as a ransom. And so what did Jesus do? Well, the most powerful in all of existence set aside his power. 
to come down for us, right? The one who controls all things, who's seated on the highest throne, sovereign over all things, with his train filling the temple, he set aside his control and came down in perfect submission to the will of the Father. The one who has eternally been accepted by the Father and the Holy Spirit in the perfect trinity set aside his acceptance while he was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one who had all the comforts of the kingdom came down and bore the rugged cross because we deserved it. How do you get freedom from such slavery? You believe that God loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we could be freed into his righteousness. That's how. And I know some of you don't like that. You're like, no, Daniel, there's gotta be steps and cleanups and equations and all these various things and there's not. The Bible calls it the foolishness of faith. In preaching, and what's, what's bizarre about it is that the message, that very message that I just gave you is power in and of itself, right? That's what Paul says in Romans 1.16. He says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Why are you unashamed? Because it's the power of God to salvation for all who believe. It is not the steps of God, it is not the decision of God, it is not the philosophy of God. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. In other words, how do you get the power, how do you get the salvation, how are you freed from the slavery of this? By believing. Because through it, God works powerfully. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse four, explains that Satan has veiled the minds of unbelievers from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You know what that means? It means you don't see him, which means you don't know his greatness, which means you don't know his rule, which means you've got a wrong view of who he is, which means you're following a false god. But then in 3.18, because Paul does things weird sometimes, before that in 3.18, he had explained how what God has done for believers is he has removed the veil from their minds so that they could see. That's the power of the gospel that Satan has blinded us from seeing because of shame and fear and guilt. And so we mold this God who would accept all that we are and we have our little idols that we just serve and we crave all these other things to offer us salvation. But God, in his power, removes that veil so we see for the first time ever. You know what the response is? It's in my absolute most favorite parable in all the Bible, Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy that field. You see, God is a concept, Christ's words on a page, until that veil's removed, then you understand that you've been sitting on the greatest treasure of all time forever. And do you know what you do when you find that treasure? You get rid of anything and everything that would hinder you from possessing that treasure, everything. 
And you don't do it begrudgingly. Because this guy, he did it with excitement. With great joy, he ran home and sold all that he owned. Once we gain a perspective of Jesus Christ, the true perspective, where he's no longer words on a page, but a king who came down to be a savior, who laid down his life as a ransom for many to pay the debt for our sin, to buy us back from that bondage of sin and slavery, we see what greatness is finally for the first time ever. And when that's the king that we follow, our whole perspective of life and others changes entirely. That's why Mark says it, or Jesus says it in Mark at the, end of the, at the end of the passage. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be a slave of everyone else. Why? Because the one you follow came to be your servant. Do you really think that you would be any less? Dalton's going to come back up as we close, and we want to open up. Uh, for a time of prayer, we're going to have the, the, our prayer partners going to come up front and listen, there's, there's a main motivation in this and it's for two types of people in the room. Maybe you've just been addressed. Some of your idols have been confronted, right? Like I think that's how revival happens. You confront idols uh, and you bring the people to Jesus Christ so they see he's greater. And so hopefully I've addressed your idols tonight, this morning. That's my goal. Um, but maybe you've been addressed by some of that. And so we wanna, we wanna invite you in, in, your, in your faith journey to come up and receive prayer from, from some of our prayer partners in the church because we believe that prayer is powerful, right? Uh, Cindy and I were just talking about this earlier. We don't battle against flesh and blood enemies, but against spiritual powers and principalities in the unseen world. In other words, this is a spiritual war and prayer is our spiritual fight. And so we, we, we pray to the God of spirits that he would work on our behalf. Or maybe you've never heard this message before. Maybe this is the first time that the veil's been lifted for you and you're seeing the glory of Christ and we wanna invite you to respond to that, uh, to take the first step in your faith journey and come and pray with somebody that you would receive Christ uh, as Lord. And so I'm gonna pray and, and, and we're gonna step into this time of prayer and worship. Father, I thank you for this time and this opportunity. I'm always so excited to get to preach your word. I'm always so excited that it's a, it's a living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword word that, that discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, that reveals, that shines light, that brings out idols and sins and all these various things. But Lord, I also am thankful that in spite of that, you love us beyond our possible comprehension to the degree that you would send your only son to lay down his life for us. Your word tells us that greater love has no man than this, that then he lay down his life for his friends, and we get to see that. And so I pray for everyone in this room, if they've never known that, that they would experience it today. And I pray for those who have, that they would have a fresh wind of worship in their hearts to want to praise you for who you are and that you'd be magnified. And we pray this for the sake of Christ in his glory. Amen.